know who out there might be listening. I think we're all beginning to get ready for the feast. Seems like it's suddenly here upon us. Uh, September 30th being trumpets. And then it gets faster and faster from there on out. This is already the 12th, so not far off. I've made up a schedule of events for the feast after we had our discussion the other evening in the meeting. And uh, need to get it printed out now and in your hands. I guess it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. Those who are preparing various activities know what they are. But it's nice to know, I guess, which day it comes on. And so I juggled that around and got it together. Let's go again to the book of Genesis. We're almost at the end of it in this continuing series on our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Joseph, and we'll break it down to Ephraim uh, before the day is through, I think and in fact already began that last time. I want to pick up a few more points here in chapter 48 before we move into 49. Uh, this is a pivotal area uh, of great importance that Joseph was divided into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and that Jacob very clearly made it known which was which, and that Ephraim would receive the double blessing and his name, in fact, means double fruit, so he would receive an extra portion. We can see that in First uh, Chronicles 5. Let's go back and pick that up for a moment. First Chronicles 5 and verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, now you've heard me quote many times from Jeremiah 31, that God calls Ephraim his firstborn. And we have seen recently in Genesis 48 where uh, Jacob put, the hands, put his right hand upon Ephraim, his left upon Manasseh. And it is uh, confirmed here, sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and then parenthetically, for he was the firstborn, but for as much as he defiled his father's bed with Bilhah, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. And the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. So the genealogy of the firstborn son would continue through Reuben. But the birthright itself, the blessings, would come through Joseph. And Jacob made it very clear then which of the sons of Joseph it would come through, and that would be Ephraim, not Manasseh. Um, we won't go to Jeremiah 31 at this point. We'll probably get there a little way down the line. So he moved the hand on Ephraim. Then in verse 18, Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. And Jacob refused and said, He shall also become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. The King James translates that multitude, and I think it bears note here, 
but that may not be the best translation. In fact, my King James Version does have a marginal note which says that the Hebrew here should read fullness of nations, not necessarily a multitude of nations. Now, Herbert Armstrong picked up, picked up on the multitude, looked at the British Empire and said, well, that is a multitude of nations, and therefore designated Britain as Ephraim. Uh, the word used here for multitude in my King James uh, is he is the uh, in, in Strong's is number four, forty-three ninety-three uh, marrow, and it means fullness, and it comes from a word that means fill or be full of. So they were to be a fullness of nations, and that could just as easily be interpreted the fullest of nations, or the strongest, or the biggest of nations, or that nation which encompasses, surrounds, and is greater than all other nations. Uh, there are several other Hebrew words for many, or multitudes. This word used here is only used twice in the Old Testament. That Hebrew word is only used twice. It talks about a fullness of shepherds in, in another verse. I think it's in Isaiah. I looked it up, but I, it didn't seem to necessarily fit in here. But the word for many, uh, used commonly in the Old Testament, is number 7230, and that's what it means. Deuteronomy 110. I'll give you a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 110. There's quite a few of these, but I just picked out a couple. Um, well, I wrote down 110, is that right? Oh, yeah. The eternal your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are as this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. Like many, many, many stars, a multitude of stars is the way that it is used there. Judges 7.12 is another place. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. So uh, that's the way that word and several others are used in the Hebrew. But this particular one in Genesis 48 in verse 19 is only used twice. And the other one in Isaiah, it could be interpreted, I think, there as many as well, but it not, might not be that either, uh, because it's not used that way here, it appears. So a fullness of nations, or to be full of, uh, does not necessarily mean a multitude or many nations, as was interpreted, and probably just from reading the King James itself without knowing the, key, the Hebrew word. So that is more obscure as a point of identification by far rather than a major identifying mark, if you will. It's a little vague, in other words. It was used as a major proof, but it is a very vague word, and it is only used twice. So I don't think it could be used as a major proof, is, is the point I'm making. Uh, if it's vague, perhaps it could go either way, if you see what I mean. 
then you, if that be the case, if it be vague and could go either way, then you have to look at other things to determine the definitions or who is who. Not that particular point, which Mr. Armstrong made a great point of. And it comes out of vagueness, not out of strength. You have to let the strong scriptures be the defining factors, and the vague ones then have to fit in with the strong ones. You can't use the vague against the strong. All right, let's go on. And he blessed them that day, saying, In you, in Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in you shall Israel bless. So the blessings that would come to Israel would come through Ephraim and Manasseh, and particularly through Manasseh. Now we have to look at the way things are today. You, we have so many in the church who have a 1950s view of what is going on in the world, and in 1950, we could not see how it would shape up. We just couldn't. And what we see today as reality is not what we surmised in 1950 and 60. We thought we had it figured out. But you have to, uh, you have to change your thinking based on what actually is occurring. I was talking to someone in another group just recently, and I could see that the mindset was still there, that there have to be only ten kings or ten nations in, Israel, in uh, Europe which rise up as the beast. Now, the curses and the uh, captivity, all those things that we talk about, don't just come on Ephraim and Manasseh. They come on all of Jacob, all the tribes of Israel. And yet we put the tribes of Israel in with the beast. Now the beast is going to destroy Israel. And if Israel is part of the beast, how does this work out? Or will they be betrayed? Now that's always been, I guess, what we fell back on. Maybe the nations of Israel that are part of the ten-nation dictatorship would be betrayed. But the scripture does not seem to indicate that. So what we are seeing today is a much larger picture of a whole world collusion against America and Britain and ultimately the nations of Israel. They are conspiring, colluding, planning, plotting, whatever word you want to use, to come against us. And I think it is become, becoming obvious now that the Arabs are against us, not just ten nations in Europe. That the Chinese and the Russians and others are against us, not just ten nations in Europe. And in fact, Psalm 83 talks about a confederacy of many different peoples from all over the world. So, when we see maps made up by people apparently from the New World Order, where they divide the earth into ten uh, kingships or stewardships or whatever word you want to use, the Bible used kings, rulers in other words. 
When you see that that is their plan, and then you combine that with the scriptures that show that it is Edomites, Ishmaelites, Arabs, uh, those of the East, a great confederacy of different peoples coming against America, you realize the picture has to be a lot bigger than what we saw in 1950 and 60. Now it does say the Assyrian is the rod of God's anger, and I would not doubt that an Assyrian would be either the beast himself or certainly be involved in this. Remember it says Ephraim goes as a silly dove to Assyria in the book of Hosea. And we'll get into some specific prophecies about Ephraim a little long, a little long away from now, perhaps next week. We'll see. But the blessing, and then ultimately the cursings, remember, you'll be blessed if you do this, you'll be cursed if you do that. I will start out blessing you because I promised to Abraham that I would bless you. And then you have to decide what you are going to do. You have to choose good or evil. Choose you this day, God says, whom you will serve. So we started out with great blessings in Ephraim and Manasseh, Britain and the United States. Uh, I think we had the order wrong, but we still started with blessing. Now we are coming down to cursing, are we not? So these things are coming about. So he said Ephraim before Manasseh, and Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you. Now there is a considerable blessing, pronouncement, and prophecy to be considered. God shall be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now when this occurred, they were in the land of Egypt, obviously. But he said, God is going to take you from Egypt to the land of your fathers, to that which was given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Let's kind of hold that thought in mind for a moment, and we'll get back to a statement here in a moment <laughs> to confirm where that might be. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brethren which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. Now, Jacob had done some fighting in his life, obviously, because he had taken the land that God said would be his from the Amorite with his sword and with his bow. Now, let's see this carried forward. I'll go to Revelation 7. Revelation 7. This is about as close to end time as you can get, I guess. And it's speaking of a time right at the end, where it talks about 144,000 here, along with chapter 14. But here it lays out the names. talks about uh, the 144,000. mentions Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh. Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, and then Joseph and Benjamin. So Manasseh is mentioned specifically here. Dan is left out. 
we speculated as to reasons for that, and I don't want to go into that at the moment. That isn't the point, or isn't the, the subject. But in verse 8, it mentions Joseph. Now, who was the leader of Joseph? Very clearly, Ephraim. So what he's saying here is, I've given a, a portion, 12,000 for Manasseh, and 12,000 for Ephraim. <clears throat> now look at the church today, or look at the church 20 or 30 years ago, I guess would be more like it. And where did you see most of the people in the church? Most were in the United States and Britain or countries affiliated with them. Canada uh, was probably the third largest, and then maybe Australia the fourth. <coughs> so where Ephraimites and Manassites are is where you see a greater portion of the church even, of spiritual Israel. So it's a prophecy being fulfilled not just physically in terms of people uh, who are physically of Israel, <coughs> but spiritually as well. <coughs> a lot of people think that this chapter is talking about physical Israelites and that Revelation 14 is speaking of spiritual Israelites of the church, and that simply is not true. It's talking about both, and I don't have time to go into that. I did it in the series on uh, how exclusive is the church. Uh, to show that these are speaking of the same peoples here and reasons for that. I know some would object because of, but I think that I was able to pretty well prove it there. All right, so Revelation <coughs> 7 shows two portions, one portion above the brethren. Uh, they, they would receive two out of the twelve. Um, there was another one I wanted to look at, Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. Uh, verse 13. Thus says the eternal God, This shall be the border whereby you shall inherit the land according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. <clears throat> now Ezekiel was written long after Joshua and the Israelites went into the promised land. Jo uh, Joshua, by the way, was an Ephraimite and divided the land up. Now, I think that that is going to become prominent and important here at the end because I believe God is working through Ephraim as a physical nation, and I believe that nation to be the United States, essentially. And that when the scattered peoples of Israel, the physical Israel and the church, specifically of the church, I'm thinking, at the moment, when God draws the people, as Haggai says will happen, to build a temple, he will draw them into Ephraim. Ephraim has two portions. Now, Ezekiel 47, I, I was about to lose the point there, Ezekiel 47 was written long after Joshua went into the promised land with the tribes of Israel and divided the land at that time. It is interesting that in the prophecies you do not see much written about most of the tribes. But there is a division of land here in Ezekiel uh, 48 and through it, which gives the borders at the end time. Ezekiel is an end time prophecy. So the borders that Joshua did with the ancient Israelites 
are going to be repeated. There may be some changes. I haven't checked that uh, closely to see as yet. But the land will be again apportioned. It was done originally. It will be done again. And it shows what the borders will be here in Ezekiel. We don't have time to go into that at this point, but I wanted to make that point that it would be another division. And it will have to be based upon where God's people are. And we're going to see more and more evidence as to where that is as we go along. <clears throat> now, let's get to chapter 49. Jacob called to his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. So here is a prophecy by Jacob of what would happen in the last days. We are in the last days today. When Jacob proclaimed this, he was referring to the period of time we are in right now. Now you will notice that this story ends at the end of chapter 50 and takes up again in the book of Exodus with Moses. So there's a 400 year, almost a 400 year period of time that is not covered. These blessings are conferred upon Ephraim and Manasseh, a rundown of what would happen to the other tribes in the last days is also given here at the end of Genesis, but then you hear nothing of these tribes for nearly 400 years. Then it surfaces again with Moses, and the tribes are divided up again. But what Jacob does in this proclamation is leapfrog from the beginning of their sojourn in Egypt to now. There's a dark period in there. Then they resurface as physical nations. And it says, in the end time, we will be given blessings. So the greatest portion of the blessings that we're talking about in this conferral of blessing by Jacob upon Ephraim and Manasseh is for now. It wasn't for then. They were going into captivity. And you do not see in Joshua, Judges, Chronicles, Kings, Samuel, in the story of Israel once they came out of Egypt and got resettled in the Promised Land, you do not see particularly blessings coming on any one tribe. They're sort of lumped together, though they're separated by physical boundaries. And there's no story, particularly, of double blessing on Ephraim or anything of that uh, nature. So Jacob was truly talking about the last days. And today, if you look around at what we can identify as Israel today, you will see some nations favored way above other nations. Now note also, that Jacob conferred a blessing upon Ephraim and Manasseh and those only. He did not call in all of his own sons and give them blessings, did he? 
he called in Joseph and his two sons, and that's all, and gave them blessings above their brethren. And Ephraim got double portion above the brethren. Now, Israel was also to be blessed, but where did that blessing come from? That blessing came through Isaac's blessing upon Jacob above Esau. So as a result of God choosing Jacob, not Esau, Israel would be blessed in the latter days, in the end time, and be given a part of the promised land, of the promised blessings from Jacob. But when it comes down to uh, Isaac and, or I mean Jacob, or Israel, and, yeah, Isaac, and, uh, or no, Jacob and his sons, you have the blessing going to Ephraim and Manasseh, and then here in chapter 49, he tells them to gather yourselves together and hear you sons of Jacob and hearken to Israel your father the things that will befall you. Now, he's not conferring a blessing here at all. He's just telling them what's going to happen to them. The others he gave specific blessings. These he just said, this is what will happen to you. I, wouldn't you rather, if your parent called you in, tell you, I'm going to give you this, 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 and this, instead of, sit down, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. Which do you think would be preferable? This is what shall befall you. This is critical information. When we look at prophecy, we have to understand that the blessings of Israel in general come through Isaac blessing Jacob over Esau, as I said. Number two in prophecy... You see, Jacob is mentioned very frequently in prophecy. When you go into Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, the Psalms, and so on, Jacob is mentioned a lot, representing all Israel. Judah is mentioned a great deal because of the scepter and the law that was in Christ coming through Judah. And today we're called, if we're in the church, spiritual Jews, not spiritual Naphtalites or Gadites or Asherites or Ephraimites. We're called spiritual Jews because our Lord came through Judah. <coughs> so Jacob is mentioned a great deal because it represents all the tribes. Judah is mentioned because Christ came through it and the law and the scepter remained with Judah. And there's only one other prominent tribe mentioned in the prophecies. One other. That's Ephraim. So the prophecies for the latter days come through Ephraim. If you look it up in the concordance, you won't find Manasseh mentioned, except a couple of three times in conjunction with Ephraim. But you'll find Ephraim mentioned all through the prophecies. You won't find Gad, you won't find Asher, you won't find Naphtali, all those other tribes are not mentioned in prophecy except essentially there in Ezekiel 47, 48 and through that section which shows how the land will be divided up and given to those tribes. So 
when you study prophecy, you don't study about uh, any tribe, essentially, other than Ephraim. Now look at the world scene today, which is the major nation on earth, which is the strongest or has been economically, militarily, and in every other way, and has the finest land, the best location, uh, the greatest blessings that any nation has ever had. It's this one. And as things are shaping up on the world scene, which is the key and critical nation? Is it India, China, Russia, Britain? No, it's the United States. What happens here affects the rest of the world. Our economy is going in the tank, and now the economies of other nations are starting to go the same place. We are beginning to lose our blessings. We're becoming a third or fourth rate nation, and we're not even going to be a nation in a few years. Because all those nations whose economies are being destroyed by the problems that we have created in living beyond our means and on credit are now destroying their economies, and they are going to hate us far worse than they hate us today. And they are going to combine and destroy us, as God has foretold. Now, I am going to follow out, God willing, the story of Ephraim, because I believe we are Ephraim. And I think that as we go through these prophecies, it's going to become abundantly clear that that's the case. Because we are the key nation in terms of what all is going on in the world today. We have nuclear weapons. We make it our business to determine who else shall have them. Now, isn't the old saying, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, true in every way? What right, really, do we have as a nation to have nuclear weapons and deny others nuclear weapons? What right do we have? None, really, except we do have, and we're big enough and strong enough to say you can't. That's the only right. Right makes might, or might makes right, I guess is the way it should be said. But now, when others decide to have them, we say we'll do something about it. We won't allow them to have them. Now, some of them develop them, like Russia, without our knowledge, or without our uh, saying they could or could not, I suppose, and suddenly they had them. Well, we can't tell them to get rid of your, theirs unless we make a deal to get rid of ours. And we've gone through some of that, and they lied and we lied too. But now we've decided to be the policeman and tell them who can and cannot. Is that arrogant? Is that vain? Is that thinking that we are more important than they are? Is that taking the viewpoint that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys? Don't all bad guys think that they're the good guys? We think we're the good guys. We believe it, don't we? We always have. The rest of the world does not take that viewpoint. They don't subscribe to our attitude. They think we're the bad guys. We're the satanic kingdom. 
as their view. So everything is skewed to our own way of thinking. We do it individually. We do it nationally. So the blessing was conferred specifically on Ephraim and Manasseh. Now the end time prophecies then come on Jacob as a whole and then specifically on Judah and Ephraim. Now let's understand in this connection that Christ rejected physical Judah. He rejected Judaism. He rejected everything Jewish on a physical level. And he looked to those who would become spiritual Jews or part of spiritual Israel or spiritual Judah. So the end time prophecies are primarily on spiritual Judah and on the physical nations of Ephraim. Those are the two nations that are centered on in the prophecies, or those two entities. Now, Herbert Armstrong recognized that we are spiritual Jews. That's so very, very clear in the New Testament as followers of our Lord, who was a Jew. So we become spiritual Jews, no matter what tribe we come from, of Israel or of the Gentile nations. We have all been grafted into becoming spiritual Jews. So if you physically are an Ephraimite, a Manassite, a Gadite, an Asherite, God changed that when you were baptized and you became a spiritual Jew. If you were black or brown or yellow in color or of any other race other than physical Israel, then you became a spiritual Jew. So all of us here are Jews. But we are not physical Jews, we are spiritual Jews, and there is no difference. Race does not enter into it in any form, fashion, or way. We're all spiritual Jews. So the prophecies are written toward the church, which is what comprises spiritual Judaism. Now that's the point that I brought out in the Minor Prophets series, I think, so clearly, uh, because it's clearly in Scripture is that those prophecies were written first to the church. But I did not have the perspective at the time that I gave that series that the United States is very, very, very likely Ephraim. So the book of Hosea talks almost exclusively of Ephraim and leaves out all the other tribes except essentially Judah, which again is the church spiritually speaking today, and the one that God is dealing with in the prophecies, since Christ did away with the Jews and said, you won't see me again until you accept those whom I sent. And he sent, didn't he? I send you, he told the apostles, I send you out. So it is clear whom he sent. He sent the church. We got a little off on that, I think, in the church a few decades ago. Herbert Armstrong was enamored with the Jews. Now he himself said he could trace his lineage back to David, that he indeed was a Jew, and maybe he was. And he spent a lot of time then over in what we now call Israel, and uh, 
rub shoulders with the Jews, the physical Jews, a lot. And even in the church, we began to adopt certain things of Judah and looked up to and admired and respected the Jews, didn't we? Because that was Herbert Armstrong's view of them. We had overlooked the scriptures which gave Christ's view of them. And it was a totally different picture. And we have people in the church today, once the church began to be scattered, who are converting to Judaism and looking to the Jews more and more and more. And they too are overlooking all those references that Christ made to the Jews as snakes, hypocrites, and whitened sepulchers with dead men's bones inside. And instead, they look up to and respect the physical Jew and Judaism. Now, the customs that we keep and the traditions we keep should not be those of the Jews. And yet people are adopting that. I've seen people start doing Jewish folk dances and all kinds of things that were traditions of the Jews. No, -uh. we don't go there. Christ said don't go there. Now we're going to see that God will combine two sticks, two houses, in the book of Ezekiel. And they are the houses of Judah and Ephraim. Ephraim, his firstborn, the one he appointed and set above the others as firstborn double portion. And I want to include Ephraim. I wonder how many people in the church of God to date have made a real study of Ephraim. I'll bet it's a very, very low number. Some have studied Abraham, some have studied Isaac, some have studied Jacob, and even Joseph and Moses. But I wonder, how, is it, how many here have done an in-depth study of Ephraim? I don't see any hands. I certainly never had. How many have done an in-depth study of Manasseh, for that matter? Nobody. I, doubt, I, I think you'd get about the same reaction throughout the whole church. And yet Ephraim, or Manasseh, won. His, our forefather, the one that we came through from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then Ephraim or Manasseh. So when it says that we have to look to our fathers there in Malachi 4, I think we have to include Ephraim and Manasseh as part of the study. Because after that, it breaks down, doesn't it? After that, it, the blessings stop, and the last days and everything that's talked about then in the prophecies will come through Ephraim. Not through any of Ephraim's sons, not through any of Manasseh's sons, but through Ephraim and Manasseh and the other tribes. But Ephraim is the only one that is mentioned at all, prominently, in any of the prophecies. From Psalms on down. Manasseh sometimes included with Ephraim, as I said. <laughs> so, today, we should find, as most prominent, should we not, Ephraim. Now, we'll see that confirmed as we go through with a study on Ephraim probably next week. But let's move on here for today.
so that we can get there next day. Here are the things that will befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, you sons of Jacob. So all Israel should be listening, wherever they might be on the globe today, to what is said right here. Because it tells those peoples what will become of them, what will befall them. Remember the old song came out many, many, many years ago, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. And people wonder what will be. As we grow up, we wonder what will become of us. Where will we wind up? What will our, our, our occupation be? Spit it out. Who will we marry? How many children will we have? Where will we live? What kind of car will we drive? How big will our house be? How much credit will we have on our car? No, I don't think we think about that. But we all wonder, don't we? What will befall us? What will our lives be like? And then as we grow older, we go into acceptance mode at some point, I guess. Except God tells us not to do that, doesn't he? He says, look to my word and look where you came from and see what will befall you and then change. Because he says you'll be either blessed or cursed. Choose blessing or cursing. So we can look at what is written here, and we don't have to wonder what will befall us. We can know. And then we can also see in the scriptures what choices we need to make so that once we are identified in scripture, we can determine what will happen beyond these physical prophecies and even the spiritual prophecies because some will be included in blessings and some will be included in cursings. Now the whole nation is going to be cursed here at the end but God is going to save out those few who will be alert and alive and awake and consider and make the changes they need to make. And he has a whole separate category for those and what will befall them. So we do not have to have befall us individually that which is going to befall the entire nation or the entire peoples of Israel. A difference can be made. This is the critical issue right now. With every member of the Church of God who has been called out of this world and given at least whatever portion of truth they understand. They have to determine between them and God whether they will be blessed individually or cursed individually. We're at a very critical junction right now. Now, generally speaking, we're going to read down through 49 and we're going to see that God could call and he could give Jacob insight as to what would happen to all of his sons and their progeny throughout the ages, even down to the last days, where they would be, what they would be doing, what their characteristics would be. And we think that we have been able to identify the bulk of these where they are today. So he says, listen to Israel your father. Reuben, verse 3, you are my firstborn, so he was literally the firstborn, 
God changed the birth order for purposes of blessing. But physically speaking, he was the firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength. Your firstborn son normally should be the beginning of your strength and receive a double portion because that's the way God set up the inheritance laws. If you had five sons, you divided the inheritance into six portions and gave two of them to the eldest son. So that was the status that Reuben held. However, there were problems. The beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power, but, I mean, those are the good things, but unstable as water. You ever shake a pan of water? It just sort of goes all over and sloshes out, doesn't it? It's not very stable. It's a liquid. It can pour any direction. Now, if you have something with clay molded in it, let's say, and it's become hard and you shake the pan, it stays in one spot. It's very stable. Water is not, and Reuben would not be. <coughs> you shall not excel. Instability causes us not to succeed or to excel in whatever we try to do. Because you went up to your father's bed, then defiled you it, he went up to my couch. So he says, it doesn't make much comment, does it, there when Reuben defiled Bilhah and Jacob. It says Jacob knew of it. It's the only comment it makes at that point. But down here, <laughs> Jacob took strong cognizance of it. And he said, here's the reason you will not excel. You're unstable. You did some very perverted, wrong things. And that will be passed along, and that characteristic in you is going to show up in your children in the last days. What do we know the nation of France for today? Unstable in terms of morals, French lovers that go everywhere. That's what they are known for. They are unstable diplomatically and have not truly excelled here in the last days. They're there, and they make wine and they don't like foreigners, but they're not truly a strong nation. They do have some good characteristics, as it says at the first. So we feel that France is Reuben. Uh, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Well, you remember the story we read not long ago about how they took advantage of the Gentile peoples, circumcised them so that they could go ahead and have the daughter and so that they could be part of Israel. And then on the third day, when they're at their very sorest, went and killed them all. So that was a characteristic of cruelty that they had. Oh, my soul, come not you into their secret, unto their assembly. My honor, be not you united. Be careful, be stay away from Simeon and Levi, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. It really wasn't a fair fight, was it? You cannot expect, necessarily, out of Simeon and Levi, fairness. They'll circumcise you and kill you in three days. 
So God said they will not even have their own nation. They'll be scattered throughout Israel. Because they can't be trusted not to kill others. But they were united as two tribes together and were all in one place. They do a lot of killing. So God scattered them around so that their power would be diffused among the nations. And that that anger and that curse and meanness would not come out. Judah, you are he whom your brethren shall praise. Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. And through Solomon and David's time, in those areas, they were. But then they did some things in the day of Christ where he said, you are going to be persecuted of the nations as well and become an enemy. And that has come to pass because of what they did to him. But generally, the Jews are praised for a lot of good characteristics. They're quite capable people. They are able to make money. They are able to uh, have a decent society wherever they might be. But let's go on. Your father's children shall bow down before you. The Jews became prominent. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you are gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. As an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Don't get the Jews mad at you. <laughs> it's like kicking a lion in the behind. And Christ is known as the Lion of Judah. And he certainly is the Lion of the world. And when he comes back, don't mess with him. Do what he says. He's the king of the jungle. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. So here is the promise that the scepter or the kingship would not depart from Judah all through the ages until Christ returns. So where royalty is, you will find Jews. Well, that is within Israel. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people. So when Christ returns, the people will gather to him, and he is going to return to his holy temple, to his people, before he returns to the earth. And people will gather to him. And I think we shall see that that gathering will occur in Ephraim. It will not occur in Judah or the land of Palestine or what we call Israel today in the Middle East. It will not be there. It will be in the land of Ephraim. And I don't think there's anyone that thinks Ephraim is in the Middle East, is there? We'll see that it's going to be in Ephraim before we're done with this study. Not there. So, the people will gather to Christ, binding his foal to the vine and his ass's coat to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So, this is speaking of prosperity here. The Jews have generally been around where there is prosperity. His eyes shall be red with wine. You drink quite a bit of wine before your eyes turn red. Bloodshot eyes are associated with drinking wine. So there would be plenty of wine where the Jews would be. There would be prosperity and lots of grapes. In other words, a good uh, uh, crop so that plenty of wine would be available. His teeth white with milk. Don't have to just drink bread, I mean drink water and eat bread. 
but the Jews would have milk. That's a sign of prosperity as well, because milk comes from cows and from goats, and that's saying that Judah would have lots of cows and goats, uh, which is symbol, symbolic of wealth, really. So that's what this is talking about. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be to Zidon. <coughs> we thought that's probably Holland. They have their haven by the sea, and in fact have reclaimed the sea. Issachar, a strong ass, couching down between two burdens. It doesn't come to mind. Where, where do we say Issachar is? Somebody. It won't come to my mind. Um. Huh? Well, Scandinavia, I was trying to remember. Dan, we might have said Dan, Denmark, but Denmark and Denmark are, are the same. Um, it, it, well, it escapes me. It doesn't really matter. In fact, in the U.S. and B.C., Mr. Armstrong just said it's the nations basically of Western Europe and let it go at that. We try to define it more later. Uh, but the key nations are Ephraim and Manasseh, and especially Ephraim in the end time. And if we are of one of those, and especially if we are of Ephraim, then we need to pay attention to the prophecies about Ephraim. I at one time said you could kind of lump them together. They're the two brothers that receive blessing, and it really didn't matter whether the U.S. is Ephraim or Manasseh, but I think the more I study uh, the prophecies and see that Ephraim is the key one, and Manasseh is hardly mentioned, then it becomes important which is which. Very important. We'll see that as we go along. Anyway, <clears throat> Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. I was, for some reason, I was thinking that was Sweden, but we, I think we said uh, later that Naphtali was Sweden because they gave goodly words and we had ambassadors come out of Sweden and so on. But, um, uh, 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way and an adder in the path that bites the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backward. Not much good said about Dan. It says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And Dan is not mentioned among the 144,000 in Revelation 7. So uh, Dan has been an adversary. We've looked upon Ireland primarily as the nation of Dan, they always bite at the Brits, uh, but I don't know that that is entirely true. Uh, it may be that there are a lot of Danites in Ireland, but Denmark, Dan has his name on Denmark, and uh, perhaps there are some Danites in Scotland. So they may have a nation, and yet they may still be scattered somewhat in other areas. It's not totally delineated. Uh, Verse 19, Gad, which we've identified probably as the Swiss, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. The Swiss have tried to stay neutral and not be overcome in wars. <coughs> Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties, probably Belgium. They have fine Belgian lace. They uh, go into pastries a great deal, fine chocolates and that type of thing. So if you want those things, you go to Belgium. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He gives goodly words. They spoke of Dag Hammarskjöld as a great uh, diplomat around World War II and so on. So I don't know whether that is correct or not. 
But let's go on down to Joseph. It's more germane to what we need to understand. Joseph is a fruitful bough. Now, the word means double fruit or very fruitful, highly fruitful, double portion. The eem on the, on the end is, means two or twin or double, double portion, double fruit. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well. So plenty of water, plenty of what it takes to grow. Whose branches run over the wall, not just a little plant that's beside the wall that struggles, but planted by waters, good waters, and expands over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. That would be true of Joseph, without dividing it out, uh, let's say Great Britain and the United States, haven't we been the ones that have been the target of those who would fight at the end, the Axis powers? Britain got into it being adjacent to Europe, but we're the ones that had to come in and save their bacon. And didn't the Japs decide to attack us on the west coast? They went into Alaska, they went into Hawaii, so they've shot at us, but it hasn't done them any good. They've hated us, but it hasn't done them any good. Verse 24, but his bow abode in strength, or his military was powerful. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. So we have been the enemy, the hated nations of the world. But God has given us the strength and the power and the military might so that they can shoot at us, but no good, do no good. But what happens when we shoot at them? We become the victors, or have up until now. It's about over. They will become victorious over us. Jacob will withstand Esau throughout all the generations until the very end, when Esau, it says, will supplant Joseph and overcome it and laugh at our calamity. Go to the book of Obadiah, go back to the blessing that God gave to Jacob over Esau through, from Isaac. And it says right there that they will prevail at the end. So up until now, Jacob has been with, able to withstand Esau, and the nation of Israel, for that matter, is mostly Edomite Jews. They are not physical Jews at all. Most of the so-called Jews living in the nation of what we call Israel today are not Jews. In fact, there is almost no Israelite presence in the Middle East today. None of the tribes of Israel are there, not even the Jews. There may be a few Jews there who are literally Jewish by blood. But most of them are from the Ashkenazi side of so-called Judaism, the Ashkenazis. They are not Jews. The Bible speaks of those who will say they are Jews but are not. In the latter days, God says he will give his people the original promised land, I will take you back to the promised land, he says, in the last days. Where is Israel today? Where is the promised land, the original promised land? 
It has to be those places we were taken back to. And we're going to see that Ephraim is very prominent in that story. This is information that most people could not believe. Most people in the church will think it's crazy. Let them think it. We're going to prove it one way or another, and we're going to see it happen one way or another. If this be true, 90% of the church will deny it and go into the tribulation because of that denial and because of their lack of response to it. We need to understand what God himself says in his word and simply believe it. Are we so hidebound in our traditions of Worldwide Church of God and the understanding, however remedial it might have been, of Herbert Armstrong in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that we cannot change when we see the fulfillment here in the last days coming down differently than that which we had always surmised. Most of the church will deny it. Insane. Utterly ridiculous, they will say. Now just what is it? Let's think about that for a moment. When the two witnesses come on the scene, they will have the truth, okay? They will be speaking for God and disseminating truth and giving oil to all seven of the churches. I'm speaking from Zechariah 4 there. Now, we have always looked in the church to that time when the witnesses would appear, the tribulation would start, and the church would flee to a place of safety. But the scriptures we read in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and various of the minor prophets indicate that it will be a small remnant who will believe those two men. And the knowledge and the information they have will come directly from God's Word and perhaps God Himself. Who knows? But 90% of the church will not believe them and will deny them and turn from them. <laughs> Think about it. What will be so different? What will be so unbelievable? that they bring that will cause the church to have that reaction. Do we ever stop to think about that? It has to be something that will sound the 90% of the church entirely, indubitably, and undoubtedly insane. Unbelievable and unfollowable. Would it be the Sabbath? I think not. Would it be the holy days? I truly doubt it. Would it be some of those foundational things that we've understood in the past? I really doubt it. Will it be because they suddenly announced that Christmas is okay? I really doubt it. 
Joe DeCotts did that and we didn't believe it, did we? Well, some did. It's amazing, really, when you look at it from that standpoint, what we will swallow. A good half of the church are now keeping more, probably, are keeping Christmas and Easter and have given up the holy days and have gone back to Sunday keeping. Here you have a false minister, Joe DeCotch, come along and preach absolute filth, rot, and pig being preached over the altar. And half the church will believe him. I just say, you know, throw that number out roughly. The church easily believed in Protestantism and Protestant evangelicals, didn't they? And yet when God sends those whom he is working with, 90% of the church will deny them. It's easy for people to go back into paganism. But it's going to be very, very difficult and almost impossible for most of the church to follow the absolute, actual truth. Now, what is it going to revolve around and be about? I'll let you think about that one, but I think we need to understand that whatever is the truth is going to be almost universally hated by the church. So it's going to be something that most people in the church would consider far out from another planet, whatever it is. I don't know that we need to necessarily pursue that at this point, but let's be aware of it. And maybe it's some food for thought. Just what could it be that would turn 90% of the church completely off? Maybe over the next weeks and months we ought to consider that. Think about it. And let's, not, let's be very careful to prove things that might come up in the future, understanding that nine out of ten are going to be deceived, and only one-tenth will see, comprehend, and respond properly. It's got to be something that most people would consider insane. So don't reject something just because it sounds insane. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Because most people will consider the actual truth insane and deny it. So I suspect that some of the things that come up, some of the things that happen, some of that which is taught is going to sound so strange to the rest of the church when it's even delivered by the two witnesses of God that they will reject it. Must be something pretty big. Must be something pretty different. Wouldn't you think? Now that we know is going to happen. I'm not standing here saying exactly what it'll be. But it's got to be something pretty different. Pretty astounding. Whatever it is. So if something is different and astounding and seems like it could not be, 
maybe you better take a look at it, a close look at it, because most of the church will be deceived. So Joseph is going to be the one that is the target of many people and will be given military and strength, strength and might. Now notice, we go on, his bow abode in strength, verse 24 of Genesis 49. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, Christ. Now we know he was a Jew, but he is entwined here in the story with whom? With Joseph. And particularly then with Ephraim, because Ephraim was chosen to be the leader of Joseph. So Christ is very clearly entwined here in the story of the blessing and what would befall Joseph and I think more particularly Ephraim because the prophecies are about Ephraim, not of Manasseh. So when we find the stick of Judah being combined with the stick of Ephraim in Ezekiel 47, it should prick our ears up. We'll get to that scripture a little later on. But the story of Christ, who came through Judah, is being entwined here with the prophecy of Joseph, very clearly. <clears throat> Even by the God of your Father, who shall help you, and by the Almighty, who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, or of the sea, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. Now, he goes on and on here about Joseph, doesn't he? He gave a little blurb on the rest of them, and most of it was bad in some cases. But here with Joseph, incredible blessings. God will be with you. What better blessing could you have than that? Blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies under. So that which is above us and that which is below us, we will have as a blessing. Blessing of the breasts and of the womb. Doesn't it say back there when it says Ephraim and Manasseh that there will be ten thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh? So even between those two, which comprise Joseph, Ephraim would be ten times the greater. And the blessing of the womb and the breasts would be toward Ephraim ten times what it would be to Manasseh. Look at the populations of Great Britain and of the United States today and which has the blessings of the womb and of the breasts the most. Even if you combine all of those who we have considered to be part of the British, that is the Australians, New Zealand, South Africa, and those who come from what we call Ephraim, the United States has far more people than all of those combined by far today. And I am not too sure, just as a thought, that all of those people who came out of Great Britain and other places who settled South Africa and New Zealand and Australia are necessarily what we would have called Ephraimites. You see, if Manasseh were there, the oldest son, and they came out from it, where did we come from? We came primarily out of Britain. They're older in terms of end-time history than we are. And there were also people who came out from there and went to Australia and South Africa. Many of those in South Africa aren't Brits in the first place. They're the Dutch. 
The Dutch Reformed Church is big down there, not the Church of England. The Boers were of the Dutch, one of which we have sitting right here. Is that true or untrue? True, isn't it? So we always lump South Africa with what we call Ephraim, the Brits. But it isn't primarily the Brits that are down there. So some of what we thought may have been askew. If you look at the Australian people today and the type of people they are, they relate more to us than they do to Britain. We're more commonly alike in many, many ways. Are those people true Brits, true Manassites, or are they possibly more connected with Ephraim when Ephraim left there? I don't know. But I don't think it's quite as cut and dried as we once thought it was. I don't know that I have all the answers on it, but some questions are there, especially with South Africa. <coughs> anyway, going on with Joseph, <coughs> verse 26 the blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. The blessings of Ephraim and Manasseh would transcend borders and be huge, bigger than anything around. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf, in the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Uh, Norway for a while was symbolic of the Viking conquests, and they were mean and nasty and evil and had lots of swords and spears and stuff. Uh, so we think that Norway was Benjamin. I don't know that for sure, but that's why we... I think the Vikings is primarily the reason we said Benjamin was Norway, and it may be so. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, but certainly prominent in there was Joseph, right? And certainly Ephraim is prominent above Manasseh in the whole story here. So these are the twelve tribes, and this is it that their father spoke to them and blessed them. Everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them. So he calls it a blessing. He said at the beginning it was what would befall them. And I think if you say it's blessings, that it's certainly mixed blessings because some of the things that would befall were pretty bad and some were good, depending on the circumstance. But the specific blessings were given to Joseph, undoubtedly, in chapter 48. And he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan. So sometime we should find, I think, his body, and it will be in the original land of Canaan, where it is found. So where are you going to look? Middle East, over here, or Timbuktu? You're going to find that you're going to have to look in the right place, I guess. <clears throat> there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. This is the end time. Well, why is he spending time and energy to explain this? Well, I wonder if those graves will not turn up, or that cave will not turn up, and there we will find Joseph and Jacob and Abraham and Sarah. 
Isaac and Rebekah. And there he also buried Leah. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. So he delineates pretty clearly where it was, why it was, and who's there. And I don't think God's wasting his breath. I think that probably at some point we're going to see the cave of Machpelah, and there we will find these. That's why such a point is made of it. Because it is talking about the last days in this chapter. <clears throat> Verse 32, And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and quit breathing. And he was gathered to his people, put into the cave of Machpelah. Let's quickly go through chapter 50 then, pick up a couple of points here. It's sort of a summary. Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. Uh, he'd had a great love for his father. It was a great communication between them, and a great bond. Joseph commanded his servants the physicians to embalm him. And the physicians embalmed Israel, and forty days were fulfilled for him. For so are fulfilled the days of those which are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned him for threescore and ten days. And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, I'm dying, and the grave which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore let me go up, I pray you, and bury my father, and I will come again. Pharaoh said, Go up, bury your father according as he made you swear. So he took him back to the promised land, back to the cave of Machpelah, uh, and buried him there. No one's found that cave to date. Archaeologists have looked and looked and looked. They've searched the Middle East over and over and over and have not found it. Where is it? All the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt went with him, and all the house of Joseph, his brothers, his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left in Goshen. But... Uh, the majority of the adults went. Then went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. They came to the uh, threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan. They knew the geography, didn't they? God had tested them 40 years. They could have gone straight to Israel in short order. Didn't take long to get there. But where was it? Got a feeling it was over here that ancient Egypt was here, the cradle of civilization was here, and that's why Ephraim is here today, in the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No Israel is in the Middle East. Arabs, Ishmaelites, Edomites, no Israelites. Maybe a few Jews who have gone there thinking that their land was to be there. Well, did God get it all wrong? Did God say he would give us back the promised land and then put us over here? Did he get it mixed up? Put us on the wrong continent? That would be strange. How could he have done that? If that's the promised land, that's where we've got to be. We're not there. That's a very basic principle. We don't have to go out on the twigs on that. God makes it very clear. In the latter days, you'll be in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land that I gave to your fathers. 
Where did I read that this morning? In chapter 48, somewhere there. Man, my eye doesn't fall on it, but it's there. Where are we? Um, now going on here. Verse 11, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the floor of Etad. They said there's a grievous, grievous mourning to the Egyptians. Uh, Egypt had fallen in love with Joseph and his family. They fell out of love with it shortly thereafter, but that's a different story. His sons did according as he had commanded them and buried him in Canaan and Machpelah. I won't go through all the details there. <clears throat> then he returned to Egypt, verse 14, after he buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said in verse 15, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did to him. They said, he's been holding it all this time. Vengeance was in his heart. Now that our dad is dead, he is going to land on us with all both feet. They sent a messenger to Joseph, saying, Your father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say to Joseph, Forgive, I pray you now, the trespass of your brethren and their sin, for they did unto you evil, and now we pray you, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You've misjudged me. You've misunderstood. I didn't have vengeance in my heart all these years. I'm not here to destroy you or hurt you. His brethren also went and fell down before his face, just as the dream originally had said. They fell again on their faces before him, and they said, Behold, we be your servants. <clears throat> Joseph said to them, Fear not, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God? Why do you worship me? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore, fear you not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, tie that in with today. God said he is going to gather all his faithful ones from around the world, speaking of the church first, and will bring them to build a temple. Now, there are a lot of brother-against-brother brother fights in the church today. One organization fighting over another. One minister saying, you can't even speak to those people in those other churches because this is the only place that's right and we're of God and they are not. Or they're all Laodiceans and we're Philadelphians. So there's fighting among the brothers of the church today, the brethren. Now, when God begins to gather his people to Joseph, specifically to the firstborn Ephraim, we're not to have rancor, we're not to have vengeance, we're not to have attitudes against, but as they come, we're to love them. We're to help them, to strengthen them, to feed them, to help them, so that we might all combine in a concerted effort in building the temple of God, the latter temple. So the lesson is here, and it came through Joseph. And what is coming will also come through Joseph, just as it did then. That will not have changed. God made Ephraim the firstborn son and set him above Manasseh. So wherever Ephraim is, is where it will happen. I think that much should be clear. 
So then all you have to do is determine where Ephraim is and know where the gathering will be. And if you're Ephraimites and you're there, if you're of Joseph, then you treat them with love and respect and kindness and gentleness when they come. They have to pass under the rod. They have to stand up to the plumb line. But once they have done that, then you treat them with love, with deference, and care. He told them, don't fear. That's what he tells us in the end time to the faithful remnant. Don't fear, be strong, be of good courage, and work. Over and over again. That's what he said to Joshua when he went into the promised land originally. And that's what he tells us here at the end, who will be in the promised land, and they will come to us. Fear not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. No vengeance. Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were brought upon Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Where did they go? Where are they? Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they bombed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. <laughs> so that ends that story. They go into slavery from there, and we don't hear of them again until Moses is brought on the scene in the book of Exodus. But I think it behooves us who are the children of Ephraim and or Manasseh to take a look now at, at Ephraim and see what would befall Ephraim in the end time. So we'll make that a study for next time, God willing.